It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. Welcome to all listening today. I appreciate you all. In the last episode... I gave an argument and I asked you to identify what was wrong with it. Here is the argument again. Premise 1. God created everything. Premise 2. Evil is a subset of everything. The conclusion, part 3. Therefore, God created evil. The Bible declares that the first premise is true. So if we want to deny the conclusion of this argument, we must show that the second premise is false. We could, of course, deny the reality of evil, as the pantheists do. But better yet, we can accept St. Augustine's understanding of evil and without saying it isn't real, rather say that evil is not a thing or a substance itself, but evil is simply the absence of or privation of good. When good that should be there is missing from something, that is evil. When something that should not be there is in fact not there, there is no reason to call that evil. After all, if a wart is not on my nose, that is not evil, because the wart should not have been there in the first place. But if someone lacks the ability to see, that is evil. Quite often when two different factions of Christianity differ markedly over the proper interpretation of certain biblical passages, the root of the difficulty lies in the failure to note appropriate distinctions. Here is one such distinction. Each individual believer in Christ must deal in two dimensions of belief. Belief that and belief in. And this distinction can be overlooked. Understanding the relationship between them is key to discerning the relationship between faith and reason. In the last episode, I gave several scriptural references for both belief that and belief in. Let us now continue giving objections to the practice of apologetics. Evidence and logical proofs can assist us towards belief that God exists, that the Bible is reliable, that Jesus was resurrected from the death, and so on. But they cannot make us willing to commit our lives to those truths. 
commitment is belief and trusting in the Lord. So belief that is logically prior to belief in. Belief that refers to an acknowledgement of a certain statement is true or that a person is trustworthy. Belief that gives the evidence and rational basis for confidence needed to establish belief in. Surely no thinking person should believe in something or someone if he or she has no reason to believe that the something exists or that someone is worthy of belief in. What woman would walk down the aisle of a church and pledge her wedding vows to love, honor, and obey someone if she has no evidence or rational grounds that someone she loved stood next to her at the altar? Once belief that is established, then one can place belief in something or someone. Belief in God means a definite trust and commitment of one's eternal destiny into God's keeping. You could find a reference to that in John chapter 5, verse 24. Thus, the rational person wants evidence that God exists before he places his faith in God. Quotes, he that wants to have a face-to-face -face relationship with God must believe that he is. In other words, that God exists, that God is real, and that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That is found in Hebrews 11, verse 6. Belief in involves significant content. It is not working up our will to force our capacity to believe, to force our believer, so to speak, to believe something or screwing up our courage to believe something without evidence. The rational person wants evidence that Jesus is the Son of God before he can place trust in him. Now let's consider objection four. Paul said that the natural man does not understand spiritual things in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. My answer is a very common objection to the practice of apologetics concerns the effect of sin on human reason. The basic idea is that sin mars not only the human will and human emotions, but also the human intellect. Like mud obscuring clear water, sin obscures humanity's ability to receive spiritual truth. Sometimes this is called the noetic effects of sin. The word noetic derives from the Latin word nous for mind. The problem is that Christians and non-Christians are not really speaking the same language since the mind of the unbeliever is clouded by sin. 
1 Corinthians 2.14 is cited to support this contention. Quotes, the natural man, that is, the person without the Holy Spirit, the non-Christian, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned, end quotes. While the noetic effects of sin cannot be denied, neither should they be misunderstood. Unbelievers can do really deep intellectual things like quantum physics and philosophy. Sin has very little effect on the technical formula in the chemical composition of a molecule. So it is not the case that non-Christians are unable to think productively. When it comes to God, however, sin is actually a state of rebellion against God. The problem with unbelievers lies not in the functioning of their cognitive abilities, but in their unwillingness to submit their lives to Christ. People who reject Christ do so for many reasons. J. Warner Wallace says in one of his books, the unbeliever shuns the truth by one of three basic reasons. He labels them rational, emotional, or volitional reasons. He says it in this way, rational, emotional, or volitional reasons. Bealby wrote this, quotes, Woven throughout their matrix of reasons for rejecting Christ are beliefs that are contrary to Christianity and misunderstandings of the details and implications of scriptural teaching. And those beliefs and misunderstandings can and should be confronted and explained. Consequently, while apologetic arguments are insufficient to bring anyone to faith, these arguments can break down intellectual barriers to the gospel and expose the intellectual bankruptcy and self-destructive nature of anti-Christian presuppositions. End quotes. A distinction needs to be made between perceiving truth as in Romans 1, verses 18 and 19, which the natural man can do, and receiving truth, which the natural man cannot do. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 2.14, about receiving the things of the Spirit of God. Objection 5. Jesus refused to give a sign or a proof in Matthew 12, verse 39, and in parallel passages in Matthew 16, verse 4, Mark 8, verses 11 and 12, Luke 11, verse 29. So why should the Christian apologist attempt to give proofs in his practice? Of course, Jesus did on occasions refuse to perform miracles. 
because he realized that some were not interested in accepting his claims, but only to satisfy their carnal curiosity. But those occasions should be seen as exceptions. For most often, Jesus carefully and thoughtfully answered questions. Think of the time when he answered the followers of the imprisoned John the Baptist in Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6. That is precisely what the Christian apologist attempts to do. Objection 6. Apologetics doesn't work. Only the Holy Spirit can save. Well, that's a half-truth, and half-truths are dangerous. That is why a witness in court pledges to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It is a fact that only the Holy Spirit can save a person. We know that from John 3.16, Ephesians 2, 1-10. But it is not true that the Holy Spirit cannot use evidence and his reason to save. It is entirely unreasonable to assume that the, the God of reason, who created people with the capacity to reason, would not use reason to touch the heart of an unbeliever. Objection 7. Logic does not tell us anything about God. Answer. This is a case where someone's bias overwhelms his logic. Logic can tell us some things about God. For example, since God is truth and his word is truth, John 14, verse 6 and 17, verse 17, he cannot lie. Hebrews 6, verse 18, and Titus 1, verse 2. This statement says that logic does not apply to issues about God. But that objection is a logical statement about the issue about God. It is logical because it claims to be true while its opposite is false. In order to say that logic does not apply to God, you have to apply logic to God in that very statement. So logic is inescapable. You can't deny logic with your words unless you affirm it with the very same words. It is undeniable. When a statement is undeniable, it must be true. So this objection is therefore false. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott.